I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Wade, in a sense, is taking eight lectures that he did for the Massey lectures in Canada uh, this year, last year. And they were, if you want the long version, the good version of what he does tonight, it's all in a book called, interestingly enough, The Wayfinders, Why Ancient Wisdom Matters in the Modern World. Uh, that'll be outside, and Wade will be outside signing those books after the talk. Field scientists lead the most exciting lives there are, I think. Um, I'm particularly fond of biologists, but I noticed this series is fond of anthropologists who come back with a field with stories to tell about um, what being human really means. We've had Daniel Everett, who's worked in Latin America, did amazing things about language. Stephen Lansing, working in Bali. Uh, Jared Diamond, working mainly in Papua New Guinea, first on birds, then on people. Wade Davis has probably been to all those places and ingested whatever they have to offer. <laughs> Not only lived to tell the tale, but has a hell of a tale to tell. Wade Davis. Well, thanks, Stuart, and thanks to so many of you for coming out tonight. And I, I, I feel like I must know all of San Francisco. I have so many friends here. And I'm especially delighted to be here with my youngest daughter, who's just started college in the um, Bay Area, Raina, who's in the front row here. Uh, so it's going to be a great delight to come out and be with you and with all of you in the future. I am going to try to compress uh, what were actually five lectures delivered in this remarkable Canadian institution uh, whereby you're given the platform to deliver a lecture in each of one of five cities and they're broadcast live on national radio in Canada and edited into a book. It's a really wonderful tradition. Martin Luther King gave them just before he was assassinated, uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss, Carlos Fuentes, uh, Margaret Atwood, and it's a real extraordinary kind of symbol of Canada's attempt to give ideas a place in the, um, in, in the public sphere. I guess I'll be telling a lot of uh, long stories tonight, a lot of stories of culture, a lot of stories of the spirit of being. And I often begin these talks with sort of a reflection on the delights of travel and what it really means for us and how it really, for me at least as a young anthropologist, and somebody asked me earlier tonight how I became an anthropologist. And it was kind of a serendipitous moment. I grew up in Canada at a time when the French and the English didn't speak to each other. And I grew up in an English suburb, a community, a community suburb of Montreal. It was sort of plunked like a carbuncle on the back of the flank of an old French-Canadian village that went back to the 17th century. And there literally was a road that divided the two communities. And my mother used to always send me to this corner grocery store owned by a, 
wonderful francophone couple to buy cigarettes or to get milk or whatever she needed. And I remember sitting on the edge of that road that divided these two worlds, knowing full well at the age of five that across that street was a different language, a different religion, a different way of being. And I was absolutely enchanted, not only the idea of the other, but by this strange and subtle prohibition coming from my world about crossing that road. And fortunately, I had an absolutely wild older sister uh, who shattered that boundary by falling in love with a francophone boy. And the wake of her elopement, I slipped through and became enchanted with that other world. And I think that's really where this long journey of culture began. And one of the intense pleasures as many of you know, of travel is indeed the opportunity to live in these different worlds, to realize that our world is only one of many, and a chance to live amongst people who have not forgotten the old ways, who still feel their past in the wind and touch it in stones polished by rain, taste it in the bitter leaves of plants. And just to know in our hectic lives that in the Amazon, jaguar shamans still journey beyond the Milky Way, or that in the high Arctic, the myths of the Inuit elders still resonate with meaning, or that in the Himalaya, the Buddhists still pursue the breath of the Dharma, is really to remember the central lesson of anthropology, and that is the idea that the world into which we're born does not exist in some absolute sense, but is just a model of reality. And the other peoples aren't failed attempts at being us. By definition, they're unique answers to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? And this, in a sense, really is the lesson of anthropology. And whether it's the voodoo acolytes in Haiti, the yak herders on the slopes of Shomalungma, the eagle hunters of Central Asia, or the thunderhoof shaman of Mongolia, all of these peoples teach us that there are other ways of being, other ways of thinking, other ways of orienting yourself in social and spiritual and ecological space. And that's an idea that, of course, can only fill us with hope. Now, together, and, and some years ago, when I became an explorer in residence at the National Geographic with this sort of mandate to celebrate culture, I coined this term ethnosphere, trying to sort of forge an organizing principle to describe this extraordinary web of cultural life that enveloped the planet and that was just as important to the well-being of the planet as indeed was the biological web of life that we know as the biosphere. And at that time, I defined the ethnosphere as being the sum total of all thoughts and dreams, ideas and myths, intuitions and inspirations brought into being by the human imagination since the dawn of consciousness. I, I saw the ethnosphere really as humanity's great legacy, the symbol of all that we achieved and the promise of all that we could achieve as a wildly creative and imaginative species. And at that time, even as we became more acutely aware of the consequences of the loss of biological life with the loss of habitat and the loss of plant and animal species through extinction, we were somewhat um, unaware, in a sense, of a parallel process of loss. I remember when His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, first spoke in the West at Harvard in the um, fall of 1979. And that same night, across the street, kitty corner to the science hall, E.O. Wilson was introducing Norman Myers, who had just written a book called The Sinking Ark, which was one of the first books to 
draw attention to the emerging biodiversity crisis. And in apologizing to the sparse audience, because of course all the kids were across the street to hear His Holiness, E.O. Wilson uh, literally said that if even Harvard students can't understand the importance of these issues of biological diversity, and they would rather be across the street listening to, and I quote, that religious kook, then we know how far we've got to go. Now, E.O. Wilson, as decent and kind a man and as brilliant a biologist who's ever walked the earth, would be the first today to regret those remarks. But it shows you how far apart these worlds were but 30 years ago in the emerging days of conservation biology, the biologists were uh, insensitive to the plight of culture and the anthropologists tended to view the, um, the, uh, the biologists as being um, mis uh, misanthropic and indeed um, uh, insensitive in their callous regard, in fact elitist in their callous regard for the plight of culture. Well, of course, those things have come together, and I've tried to use this term ethnosphere over the, over the years as that organizing principle because when I first began to do this research and I connected to the linguistic community, I was absolutely astonished. Despite all my training in anthropology, I was really not aware of the intensity of the crisis of language loss. And this, of course, is a canary in the coal mine. No biologist would suggest that 50% of all plants and animals are moribund because it really is not true. And yet that, the most apocalyptic scenario in the realm of biological diversity, scarcely approaches what we know to be the most optimistic scenario in the realm of cultural diversity. And the great indicator of this, of course, is language loss. Nobody really knows how many languages there are. Some people say the difference between a dialect and a language is that a language has an army. But we basically feel that there are roughly 6,500 to 7,000 languages in the world. Of those, half aren't being taught to children, which means effectively they're moribund on the brink of extinction. Now, a language is not just a body of vocabulary or a set of grammatical rules. A language, by definition, is a flash of the human spirit. It's a vehicle through which the soul of each particular culture comes in the material realm. Every language, I once wrote, is an old-growth forest of the mind, a watershed of thought, an ecosystem of social, spiritual, political possibilities. And to live through a time when virtually half of the languages are being lost is, is to live through a time in which half of humanity's legacy is being sacrificed. And of course, there are always those who say, wait a minute, wouldn't the world be a better place if we all spoke one tongue? Wouldn't communication be facilitated? Wouldn't it be easier to get along? And my answer to that is always to say, what a great idea. But let's make that universal language a nuktatak. Let's make it Quechua, let's make it Haida, let's make it Tibetan. And suddenly you begin to feel, as a native speaker of English, what it would be like to be enveloped in silence, to have no ability to pass on the wisdom of your ancestry or to anticipate the promise of your descendants. But of course, that is the plight of someone somewhere on earth every fortnight because on average, every two weeks, some elder slips away and carries with him or her into the grave the last syllables of an ancient tongue. But what really is at stake? What do I mean when cultures are lost, we lose a part of ourselves? 
Well, it may seem odd in a, in a lecture that celebrates the, the wonder of culture to tip my hat to genetics, but this is really where the story begins. Population biologists have at last proven it to be true, something that philosophers have always dreamed to be true, and that is that we are all, quite literally, brothers and sisters. And I don't mean that in the spirit of hippie ethnography. I mean, quite literally, we're all cut from the same genetic cloth. Studies of the human genome and studies of the Y chromosome descendant through the male lineage and mitochondrial DNA through the female lineage have left absolutely no doubt that the human genetic endowment is a single continuum. It is suggested that race is an absolute and utter fiction. In fact, we can not only identify the place where the Garden of Eden was, we can also identify the place in Africa where our ancestors walked out of that continent. Indeed, all of humanity is descended from a relatively small number of individuals who roughly 55,000 years ago slipped away from the ancient continent and in an epic hegira of 2,500 generations carried our species to every habitable corner of the planet. But if you accept that we're all cut from the same genetic cloth, there's an obvious corollary. If we are all cut from the same genetic cloth, we all share, by definition, the same intellectual potential, the, the same raw mental acuity, the same uh, uh, capacity for thought, for belief, for dreams. And therefore, how we choose to use that universal capacity is simply a matter of choice. We have a conceit in the West that while we've been developing technological wizardry, somehow the other peoples of the world have been intellectually idle. Nothing could be further from the truth. We may put a priority on technological innovation, but other people, such as the Aboriginal societies of Australia, pay attention more intensely to unraveling the complex threads of memory inherent in a myth. But this revelation finally puts the lie to the old 19th century canard that there is a progress in human affairs that goes from the savage to the barbarian to the civilized of the Strand in London. It shows without any doubt that culture is only a manifestation of options, that there is no ladder to success that conveniently places ourselves at the top. There's no pyramid of success that places industrialized Victorian society at the apex of the pyramid that slopes down to the so-called primitives of the world. There really only are a series of options. And so the other peoples of the world are not failed attempts at being us. They're unique answers to this fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? And when people are asked that question, they respond with 7,000 different voices. And those voices collectively become our human repertoire for dealing with the challenges that will confront us in the ensuing millennia. I think ultimately that's the great lesson of anthropology. And, you know, I was very fortunate. I'm sure many of you know the writings of Mathieu Ricard, who is the uh, translator for His Holiness in, in France. He's written a number of wonderful books, including a book on happiness that made the number one bestseller list. It was number one book in France. I didn't even know that the French actually believe in the concept of happiness. Uh, he didn't either, but he somehow pulled it off. But I traveled with Mathieu in, in Nepal to make a film uh, that we called The Science of the Mind. Why did we use that term science to describe Tibetan Buddhism? 
Well, what is science but the empirical pursuit of the truth? What is Buddhism but 2,500 years of direct observation as to the nature of mind? Uh, Mathieu, who himself was originally a molecular biologist studying in the lab of a Nobel laureate at the Pasteur Institute outside of Paris, said to me one day that so much of Western science is a major response to minor needs. We spend all of our lifetimes trying to live to be 100 without losing our teeth. We in Tibet, he said, spend all of our lifetimes trying to understand the nature of existence. He said that your billboards in the West celebrate naked teenagers in underwear. Our billboards are many walls of prayers for the well-being of all sentient creatures. But what do I mean by different ways of thinking, making for quite different possibilities of both the human spirit but of the human adaptation? Well, let's slip for a moment into the greatest culture sphere ever brought into being by human beings, that of Polynesia. Tens of thousands of islands flung like jewels upon the southern sea. A diaspora that we now know began ten centuries before Christ off the coast of New Guinea, an ancient civilization that we call Lapita. Within ten centuries, they had moved east as far as Fiji and beyond to Tonga and Samoa. There, for reasons we do not understand, it stopped for a thousand years. The ceramic tradition was lost, but not notions of the decoration of the human body, the nature of the ancestors, the divine origins of the wind. And then sometime around 200 years before the, the Christian era, what we now know to be the modern Polynesians began this extraordinary journey, sailing east from Samoa and Tonga, ultimately to Cook Islands, Tahiti, 4,000 kilometers to the Marquesas, eventually north to Hawaii, and then southeast to Rapa Nui, or Easter Island, and eventually around the time of the First Crusade, reaching back to what we now call New Zealand. And I recently was able to sail with the Polynesian Voyaging Society on a vessel named the Hokalea, after Arcturus, the sacred star of Hawaii, this is a recreated catamaran based on the drawings made by Captain Cook's um, uh, 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 artist and, and naturalist, uh, Joseph Banks. And the Hokalea has sailed throughout the South Pacific, uh, recreating the journeys of the ancestors. And these are sailors who even today can name 250 stars in the night sky. These are sailors who can sense the presence of distant atolls of islands beyond the visible horizon simply by watching and studying the reverberation of waves across the hull of the vessel, knowing full well that every island group in the Pacific has its own unique refractive pattern that can be read with the same perspicacity with which a forensic scientist would read a fingerprint. These are sailors who, in the darkness of the hull of the vessel, can distinguish as many as five different sea swells moving through the canoe at any one point in time, distinguishing uh, 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 currents that are caused by low, or wave patterns that are caused by local weather system from the deep currents that pulsate thousands of kilometers across the Pacific, and that can be followed with the same ease with which a terrestrial explorer would follow a, a, a river to the sea. And the most amazing thing about this tradition is that the Polynesians did not have the written word. And the entire system of navigation was based on dead reckoning. 
Dead reckoning simply means that you only know where you are by remembering where you've come from. And it was the, the impossibility of a long voyage by means of dead reckoning that kept European transports hugging the shorelines of continents until the British solved the problem of longitude with the invention of the chronometer. But centuries before that, the wayfinders of the Polynesian civilization swept across the greatest ocean on earth. Now, dead reckoning means that you have to literally remember every change of course, every change of wind, every impression from the natural world over the course of a long voyage. The Hokulea once sailed from Hawaii to Rapa Nui. Now, that's sailing 6,000 miles, crossing the uh, doldrums, tacking into the wind for 1,500 miles, which effectively quadruples the length of the journey, all to reach an island that was 25 kilometers across, less than a degree on a compass, were a compass, in fact, to have been on board. But, of course, there was no compass. And that journey was completed within our lifetimes simply by the navigators of the Polynesian Voyaging Society reaching back through the whispered threads of memory into the tradition of the navigators and bringing back this way of travel to life. And so, indeed, if you took all of the genius that allowed us to put a man on the moon and applied it to an understanding of the ocean, what you would get is Polynesia. Now, if we move from the ocean to the forest and we enter the greatest forest on Earth, we come into the heart of the Amazon. And the Amazon uh, invokes cliché even as it defies hyperbole. After all, it's the greatest expanse of forest on Earth, larger than the continental United States, or more poetically put, larger than the face of the full moon. And virtually everything we understood about the Amazon when I went to graduate school has been turned on its head. It's really fascinating. You know, Joseph Conrad described the, the, the rainforest, the jungle, he said, as less a force than a primeval mob, a remnant of an ancient era when vegetation rioted and consumed the, the world. And this was the image of the rainforest as green hell, uh, a kind of a, uh, an evil place. And by the time I came a- along, the, the jungle had, uh, had become a term that had gone long out of fashion, and the rainforest itself had become an Eden, a kind of a delicate Eden, often called a counterfeit paradise, that could clearly endure our ways so long. Well, this idea of the rainforest as a delicate place was informed in part by a basic understanding of the nature of tropical rainforest ecosystems and the fact that the biological wealth is not within the soil but within the living vegetation itself. And so the idea, as you've all heard, is that if you remove that canopy, you set in motion a chain reaction of destruction of cataclysmic significance. Well, this concept, while useful as a fundamental way of thinking about these ecosystems, when applied to a rainforest the size of the continental United States, was as much slogan as science. And 50 years of field research has given us a very different notion of what the Amazon, in fact, is. Now, this, of course, is a place of remarkable cultures. People like the Barasana, a people of the Anaconda, who believed that mythologically they came up the Milk River from the east in the belly of the sacred serpent, only to be regurgitated onto the various affluents of the northwest Amazon. A people who 
are so entwined with that forest in their adaptations that cognitively they do not distinguish the color green from the color blue because the canopy of the heavens is equated to the canopy of the rainforest. I am going to tell you a little bit of a complicated but revelatory story. I first went to live with the Badasana in 1974, and I felt, first of all, they were about as far away as you could get from anywhere in the northwest Amazon. The northwest Amazon of Colombia is the size of France. And at the time, I felt this was a disappearing world, and that was an old canard of anthropologists at the time. And there was something going on here that was extraordinarily unique and special, but anthropologists hadn't quite figured out what it was. Our views of the Amazon were much more commonly influenced by what we had experienced with other cultures, people like the Warani, uh, who were a remarkable society uh, living in the eastern flanks of the Andes in, in Ecuador, a people first peacefully contacted in 1958, fully five years after I was born. The Warani were uh, a remarkable people in part because in their isolation, they had created a kind of a intense intra-tribal warfare such that 54% of the mortality was due to them spearing each other. But they did have a remarkable knowledge of the forest. Their hunters could smell animal urine at 40 paces and tell you what form of life had left that behind. And these kinds of, of gifts enchanted anthropologists and ethnobotanists as we pursued plants like this one, the flying death, the curare dart venoms that, of course, yielded detubocurarine, the muscle relaxant that revolutionized medicine in the 1940s. And we became enchanted by the allure of the shaman, isolated individuals who took these extraordinary metaphysical journeys into the realm of the divine in order to work their deeds of medical and mystical rescue. Individuals who would use these curious plants like ebene, the semen of the sun, the blood-red resin of several species in the genus Varola, containing powerful psychotropic agents, dimethyltryptamine, 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine, as, Dennis, as Terence McKenna, the late Terence McKenna, so famously said to have the stuff blown up your nose was like to being shot out of a rifle barrel lined with Baroque paintings and landing on a sea of electricity. It created <laughs> not the distortion of reality, it created the disillusion of reality. In fact, I used to argue with my professor at Harvard, the legendary plant explorer, Richard Evan Schultes, the man who sparked the psychedelic era with his discovery of the magic mushrooms in Mexico in 1938, that you really couldn't classify these tryptamines as hallucinogenic because by the time you were under the influence, there was no one home anymore to experience the hallucinations. <laughs> but we became enchanted with this, not simply because of the dazzling pharmacological effects of these plants, but what they told us about a different way of knowing. And the exemplar of that, of course, is a plant that's become very popular in the West, ayahuasca, the vision vine, the vine of the soul, which critically is not a plant, but a preparation. Now, those tryptamines are taken through the nose because they're orally inactive, because they're denatured by an enzyme found naturally in the human stomach, monoamine oxidase. They can only be taken orally if taken in conjunction with some other drug that denatures the MAO in the human gut. So ayahuasca is actually a combination of the leaves, in this case of a nondescript shrub in the coffee family, chock full of tryptamines, and the bark of a nondescript woody liana, 
filled with these curious beta-carbolines, harmine and harmaline, which turn out to be MAO inhibitors of the precise sort necessary to potentiate the tryptamines. And the reason this so intrigued anthropologists and ethnobotanists is because you had asked the fundamental question, how in a flora of 80,000 species of vascular plants did the indigenous people learn to combine these two morphologically distinct denizens of the rainforest in this powerful synergistic way, a kind of biochemical version of the whole being greater than the sum of the parts? And the only answer we had scientifically was trial and error, which was quickly exposed as being a meaningless euphemism. The Indians would say, the plants teach us. Schultes famously amongst the Siona and the Sequoia and the Kofan in the 1940s, identified 17 varieties of the ayahuasca liana, all of which were referable to his Harvard-trained taxonomic eye as the same species, and yet the people recognized them consistently in the forest. And when he asked them the nature of their systematics, they looked at him as if he were a fool or a naive, and they explained that of course, anyone who studied plants would know that you took each one of the 17 on the night of a full moon and each one sang to you in a different key. Well, that's not going to get you a PhD at Berkeley in plant systematics, but it's a lot more interesting than counting flower parts. But it tells you something about a different way of being. Now, this is really what I want to try to get around to. These, what we call marginal societies, was a, was a lens through which, if I, if I mentioned that we had this idea of the Amazon being this, this delicate, fragile place, that persisted in the literature in part because it served a legitimate environmental agenda and our concerns with deforestation, with the expansion of the Brazilian frontier in particular from the south, but it also fit Western preconceptions of what it meant to live in the Amazon. By the time Europeans had modern contact with the Amazon, of course, the main trunk had been depopulated by disease at the time of contact. And the only extant societies were the societies that we came to know as the marginal societies, not in a pejorative term, but these were simply the societies that literally lived at the margins of the Amazon basin, unreachable because of cataracts from below, unreachable from the West because the Andes weren't traversed by roads until after World War II. And so when anthropologists flooded into the Amazon uh, in the 1960s, these were the real Indians that we were drawn to see. Now, typically, these societies were endogenous. They married amongst themselves, often in open, open conflict with their neighbors. They were relatively simple in their technologies, simple in their social structures, and these were became the image we had of the Amazon Indian. But if we look back in the journals of Aureliana, Gaspar de Caraval, who wrote in 1541, the first Europeans to go down the Amazon, it's said that when they reached the confluence of the Napo and the Ucayali, as the rivers are known in Peru, Aureliana went temporarily insane because he couldn't understand how a river on God's earth could be so big. And so that idea, together with the fact that they encountered the Amazon women, and the Amazon women immediately uh, caused the, uh, the chronicle that Gaspar de Caraval wrote to be denigrated and ridiculed, not because of what he said about the Amazon, but because he re repeated this 
canard about Amazon women that every explorer had come home with because they had learned it in the journals of Herodotus. And so Cortez found the black queen, Calafilia, which is why you call yourself Californians. Uh, um, uh, you know, um, uh, Columbus found warrior qu- queens in the Antilles. And so the journals of Aureliana's expedition were kind of dismissed from history, and they weren't even published until 1895. But if you look at those journals, the minute they reached the Napo, they encountered civilizations. The entire riverbanks of the Amazon were populated by thousands of people. We now know that the Amazon was not an empty place, but the homeland of tens of millions of people. We now believe that slash-and-burn agriculture is not this delicate way to live in the forest, but probably is a technology that developed in the wake of contact with the arrival of steel tools. We now know that 20% of the Amazon is made up of black soils, human-created soils. The people didn't slash-and-burn and move on. They had every incentive to stay put, and they did. So there were these great civilizations in the Amazon that archaeology is only beginning to unveil. Just last week, you probably saw the reports of the discoveries in Bolivia of clearly huge concentrations of populations. The question is, what came of those visions? And is there a place in the northwest Amazon where such visions are still alive? And there is, in the homeland of the people of the Anaconda. Isolated people who live very differently from those marginal societies. These are peoples like the Barasana, the Tucano, the Macuna, the Taiwanos, living in these incredibly complex societies in these isolated blackwater rivers, incredibly complex ritual activities, knowledge-based traditions in which the, the savant is honored beyond the warrior, living in great monumental structures that in their, in their symbolic elaboration are as significant as anything the Inca ever built. Ritual uh, um, institutions that facilitate peace, not war, not the least of which is a curious marriage rule that in order to marry, you must marry someone who speaks a different language. And so in any one longhouse, you will have... You'll have six and seven languages spoken, but curiously, you never hear a child practicing a distinct tongue. They simply wait, watch, listen, and begin to speak. And we went back to make a film with the people of the Anaconda last year, and where all of this comes together is in ritual, where you don't have isolated individuals imbibing ayahuasca in the forest. You have 250 men in full ritual regalia, five days and nights, imbibing copious amounts of ayahuasca, literally becoming the ancestors to journey through sacred space back to the points of origin that don't exist in historical time, but exist today, in which mythology itself becomes an incredibly sophisticated land management plan, which literally allowed populations numbering in the tens of thousands, indeed in the millions, to live in the Amazon. We realize now that to have tried to understand the Amazon, as we did, would be like trying to understand British civilization from the perspective of the Hebrides after London had been nucleated by an atomic bomb. What we're now discovering is that the Amazon is a place of huge civilizations 
And indeed, the incredible thing is that the people of the Anaconda are still to, there to inform us precisely how those civilizations found a way to live in that forest. And that was, to me, the most remarkable expedition I've done in the last 20 years. But this idea of turning to landscape as a key to character and a key to understanding culture, I think, is something that came to me very early uh, in my career. I was very fortunate um, to be part of a remarkable study of a plant known to the Inca as the divine leaf of immortality, coca, the notorious source of cocaine. And we knew at the time of that assignment, which was, I must say, the dream academic grant of the 1970s, uh, <laughs> a quarter million dollars from the U.S. government, a brand new Dodge pickup truck, a wonderful dog named Pogo, and every conceivable drug known to man. <laughs> I think Tim Plowman and I ate our way through South America. But coca became this remarkable lens for understanding Andean life. Uh, you know, in the time of the Inca, a shrine could not be approached if you did not have coca in your mouth. Uh, unable to cultivate coca at the elevation of the imperial capital of Cusco, the Inca replicated it in gold and silver leaf in fields that colored the landscape. And to this day, there is no gesture that occurs in the Andes that is not mediated by some kind of reciprocal exchange of the energy of that sacred leaf with the landscape itself. No field can be planted or harvested, no child led into the realm of, of life or elder taken into the realm of death without some kind of ritual gesture involving the sacred plant. And the lens of coca then opened up these remarkable sense of relationships which I define in the book The Wayfinders as a, no, as a notions of sacred geography. And again, I'm not speaking in terms of hippie ethnography. What I'm saying is, what does it really mean to believe, as the people in the Andes do, that the earth is alive, uh, dependent on the human imagination, responsive to the needs of hum human beings, even as human beings are in turn uh, responsible for certain ritual obligations toward the earth itself? The point isn't whether a mountain is in fact a mountain deity, a sacred being, or whether it's a pile of rock. The interesting observation is how the perspective changes the relationship between the human society and that natural resource. I mean, I, I was raised in the forests of British Columbia to believe that those forests existed to be cut. That was the foundation of the ideology of scientific forestry that I learned in school and I practiced as a logger in the woods. That made me a profoundly different human being than my friends amongst the First Nations who believed that those same forests were the abode of Hukuk and the crooked beak of heaven and the cannibal spirits that dwelled at the north end of the world, spirits that would have to be embraced during the Hamatsa initiation, such that the wisdom of the wild could be brought back to the community during the potlatch. Now again, the issue isn't whether that forest was mere cellulose and bored feet or whether it was a domain of the spirits. The interesting observation is how those beliefs result in different um, outcomes. You know, the First Nations of British Columbia have lived on that coast for thousands of years, having had a relatively modest ecological footprint, whereas the worldview from which I emerged has ravaged that coast in less than three generations. And so I've always been interested in these ritual gestures that create the sense of relationship. And of course, in the Andes, it's not 
a metaphysical thing, but it's something people live every day. People see that the clouds condense into the rain on the flanks of the mountains. They see that the rain brings fertility to the fields. They live in a, in a place where a hailstorm or a deep frost can wipe out a crop in 15 minutes, as occurred in Cusco in 1983. So this idea of having to appropriate the natural world comes, in a sense, naturally. And no, no, on, it happens both in the community level and on a kind of pan-Andean level. Now, I've spent a lot of time around a, a small town called Chinchero outside of Cusco, site of the summer palace of Topa Inca Yupanqui, the second of the great Inca rulers. And once each year, this remarkable event occurs whereby the fastest young boy from every hamlet is given the honor for the day of becoming a woman. And dressed up in the traje of his sister or his mother, he becomes a transvestite known as the Wailaka. And as the Wailaka, he must carry the ritual banners of the community on a run. But it's not your ordinary run. It starts off at 11,500 feet, runs down 2,000 feet to the base of the sacred mountain, the Apu, Antakilka, and then soars up to 15,000 feet, only to fall away the other side to the sacred valley, only to climb once more over two soaring and the impasses over the course of a very long day. The entire perimeter of the race is the boundary of the community, a boundary that is marked by uh, mujones or itos, the, the sacred piles of dirt where the wailaka must spin to bring the vortex of the feminine to the mountaintop, where coca is given to the earth, where libations of alcohol are blown to the wind. And the metaphor is so beautiful is that the people go into the mountains as individuals, but through sacrifice, which means to make sacred, and through exhaustion, they emerge as a community that through ritual gesture has once again reaffirmed its sense of belonging and more importantly, its sense of obligation to that particular spirit of place. And I can assure you that when I completed the Mujumiento at the age of 48, I was the first outsider. Steve King ran part of it, my old friend here. I think I was the first person to complete it, and uh, Steve would have completed it with me if he had been in the field, I'm sure. But I also uh, can promise you that I only managed to complete it by chewing more coca leaves in one day than anyone in the 2,000-year history of the plant. <laughs> but these localized pilgrimages become pan-Andean in these fantastic rituals like the Coyariti, which occurs close to Corpus Christi when the Pleiades reemerge in the sky. And it's kind of like an Andean woodstock. It has deep pre-Columbian roots, Tens of thousands of Indian people from all over the southern Andes emerge on this sacred valley of the Sinicara, which is dominated by the three tongues of the Colcapunca Glacier. And in this perfect fusion of pre-Columbian and Catholic beliefs, uh, which is the reality of the pan-Andean world of the last 500 years, the ritual symbolism is profound. People move up into the high mountains carrying a black stone to be placed at the foot of the glaciers. They move up following the stages of the cross in pure Christian liturgical procession, but they do so in the shadow of Ausangati, the most sacred of all the summits of the Andean uh, Empire. And then they carry their crosses from their communities into the ice to plant them into the ice overnight, 
that they may become empowered by the residents of Pachamama. The people who carry the crosses up, the Pablitos, are those uniquely empowered to deal with the Condanalos, the spirits of the dead that dwell on the place of of ambiguity, which is ice. Now, these sorts of contemporary rituals even allow us to deconstruct such common, uh, such iconic places of Machu Picchu. How many of you have been to Machu Picchu? Lots of you. I'm sure many of you heard it described as a lost city. It was only a lost city in the fantasies of the National Geographic. It's perfectly situated geographically to control access to Antisuyu, the one quadrant of Tewantisuyu, the Incan Empire, the Inca never could totally dominate, the eastern lowlands, a vital source of coca, medicinal inspiration, medicinal plants. It also controlled the access geographically to the Sacred Valley leading up to Cusco. You simply have to look around and you can see the network of roads that linked it in to the 14,000 kilometers of roads that the Inca built in the less than 100 years of the empire's existence. But more significantly, Machu Picchu is linked in to Andean notions of cosmology and sacred geography. If you go to the center point, as you all did, the Intihuatana, what Bingham calls the hitching post of the sun, this strange abstract monolith carved out of stone at the center, you suddenly notice that the Apu, the sacred mountain of Machu Picchu, which is a sugarloaf mountain many of you climbed, Huayna Picchu, the light that falls in the face of the Intihuatana constantly reflects the light that is on the face of the Apu. If you come to the south of the Intihuatana, you discover an altar. Go to the top of the summit of Huayna Picchu, you find the parallel altar. Do a direct north-south bearing, and you find to your astonishment that that bearing bisects the Intihuatana, continues to the, to the horizon, where it bisects Salkantay, the second of the most sacred mountains of the Inca, the mountain that metaphysically is seen as a source of all the water for the site of Machu Picchu. But then it gets even more complex, because the Milky Way, which is the most important uh, uh, astronomical configuration for the Inca, when the Southern Cross is at the southernmost point in the sky, it too is in that same direct bearing. And if you climb Machu Picchu Mountain, you find that the Vilca Nota, or the Urubamba, which like a serpent envelops Machu Picchu, and the Vilca Nota, or the Urubamba, was of course seen as the earthly equivalent of the Milky Way. It was also the trajectory along which Viracocha walked at the dawn of time when he brought the empire into existence. But where is the Urubamba born? In the snowfields of Ausangati. So 500 years after the conquest, when people go back to the glaciers of the Coyariti, they are echoing notions of sacred geography that we know go back for 1,500, 2,000 years in the Andes. And if what you experience in the southern part of Peru is a perfect reflection of the syncretic reality that came with the conquest by the Spanish, there was one place in South America where the pre-Columbian voices remained unfettered, and that's in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta of Colombia, the this incredible isolated volcanic massif that soars to 6,000 meters right out of the coastal plain of Colombia, the largest coastal mountain range on Earth, a mountain range that is the homeland of the Elder Brothers. The four tribes, the Kankwana, the Wiwa, the Kohi, and the Arawakos, who were descendants of the Tyrona civilization, 
which was the civilization that carpeted the Caribbean coastal plain and a civilization that was vanquished by the Spanish in 1571. In the wake of that, their descendants slipped up into this mountain and transformed their civilization from that of a warrior-based militaristic society into truly a devotional society of peace. They call themselves the Elder Brothers. The central metaphor of their culture is the loom. They say, upon this loom I weave my life. As they move up and down the slopes of the Sierra Nevada, uh, uh, exploiting various ecological niches, they refer to their movements as threads. So that over the course of a lifetime, you literally weave a cloth over the body of the earth itself, saranqua. And indeed, when they plant a garden, the women plant the southern half like this, the men plant the northern half like this, so that if you turn the garden on top of itself, you literally get a piece of cloth. They believe that their prayers and their prayers alone maintain the cosmic balance. And the training for the priesthood, and they still remain to this day in a bloodstained continent ruled by a ritual priesthood, is intense in the extreme. The young acolytes are taken away from their families at the age of three and four with the support of the parents and then sequestered for 18 years, two nine-year periods deliberately chosen to mimic the nine months of gestation in their natural mother's womb. Now they're metaphorically in the womb of the great mother. And for that entire time, the world only exists as an abstraction as they are taught the values of their society which maintain that their prayers and ritual gestures literally maintain the cosmic balance. And after this incredibly intense initiation, which Reichel Domatov, the legendary Colombian anthropologist, reported in the 1940s, literally occurred in the darkness of the men's temple, they are led out before light and taken on pilgrimage. And for the first time in their lives, they literally see the world in all of its beauty. And they're told, you see it as I've told you, it's yours to protect. Reichel never accompanied one of those pilgrimages, and it was something I always wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to find out if it could possibly be as exotic and intense as he had described. And my opportunity came just about two years ago when this man came into my office at the National Geographic a leader of a delegation of mamos who were there in Washington at the invitation of the Colombian embassy. And as Danilo uh, Villafania began to speak to me, I interrupted him. I said, you know, I I hate to be bothersome, but you, you look an awful lot like an old friend of mine. And the man on the right here turned out to be Danilo's father, who I lived with, with Tim Plowman in 1974. And I said, Danilo, I hate to be rude, but you may not think you know me, but when you were a baby, I carried you on my back up and down the mountain. And then I showed him a photograph of his father from a book of mine, One River. We had a great laugh, and out of that kind of camaraderie came this really remarkable invitation to accompany Eugenio, the boy on the left, is now, oops, is now this man here, second from the left, and Adalberto uh, was murdered by the paramilitaries. So there was this very big emotional kind of reconnection that led to this remarkable journey where we began at the sea and accompanied one of these initiates on the journey to the ice. And the metaphor is that you take products from the sea to the sacred ice and products from the ice back to the sea. 
And we discovered that the apprenticeship is indeed as intense as Reichel described. It's not always in the darkness of the hut, but the young apprentice-to-be never leaves the confines of the men's ceremonial center until the moment of the journey. And the journey takes you literally above the trees to what the people call the heart of the world. Every single ripple in the landscape resonates with mythological significance. Even the hats that the Arawakos wear are an echo of the sacred snow found at the heart of the world. And this was an extraordinary journey because, of course, those mountains have been uh, a center of insurgency, and the FARC and the ELNA were there. And we had the misfortune of uh, being stalked by a FARC patrol. And so in the end, we had to actually abandon our quest just before the sacred lakes and slip away, led by two of the Arawakos. But we were fortunate in having trained Wiwa cameramen, so we simply gave the camera to our colleagues, and they finished the film for us as we had a kind of Wild West escape that took us back down to the sea. But the extraordinary thing is to think that two hours from Miami Beach, in a homeland that is still on the coast, you know, cluttered with brothels and discotheques and high-rises, you still have the elder brothers praying every day for our collective well-being. They, they call themselves the elder brothers, and they dismiss the rest of us uh, who, who have, in their minds, ruined the world as the younger brothers. And they speak in full and specific paragraphs about the obligation of human beings to be stewards of the planet. Now, I was very, very fortunate, I think, um, to, to study um, not only with someone like Tim Plowman, but also with the, with the great Richard Evans Schultes. And after uh, several years of working in South America, as an ethnobotanist, I, I kind of live by Marshall McLuhan's adage that if it works, it's obsolete. And there got to a point where I just felt I had done most of what I wanted to do in the botanical realm, and I was looking for another kind of challenge. And I was at the right institution because there was always some possibility uh, lurking in the fourth floor area of, of Richard Evans Schulte's. And one winter day in, the, uh, in uh, February of 1982, he summoned me to his office and asked me very casually whether I was interested in going down to Haiti, infiltrating the secret societies, and securing the formula of a drug used to make zombies. Well, naturally, I said yes. <laughs> and I went off to this remarkable Haitian-African reality, uh, thinking that it might be a lark, having no idea that it would end up consuming four years of my life, because what I experienced in Haiti within 24 hours was something that had eluded me in the Amazon for all those years. And that was truly a window wide open to the mystic. And I added these images tonight because Haiti should be in all of our thoughts uh, tonight. Literally, it may be the case that hundreds of thousands of people have died in this um, terrible earthquake, the epicenter of which was 10 kilometers from the Voodoo Temple where I did my research. But I went down there as naive as anyone about this remarkable religion. And it's interesting, if I asked you to name the great religions of the world, what would you say? Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, whatever. There's always one continent left out, sub-Saharan Africa. The tacit assumption being that 
black people had no religion. Well, of course they did, and voodoo is not a black magic cult. It's simply the distillation of very profound religious ideas that came over during the tragic era of slavery and became sown in the fertile soil of the New World. The essence of voodoo is a dynamic relationship between the living and the dead, whereby the living give birth to the dead, the dead became, become seen as the multiple expressions of the divine, but in this quintessentially democratic faith, even the dead must be made to serve the living. To serve the living, they must become manifest. To become manifest, they must be recalled to the world to momentarily displace the souls of the living so that for that brief shining moment, human being and God become one and the same. That's why the Haitian people always said to me, you white people go to church and speak about God, we dance in the temple and become God. And spirit possession is not some kind of psychic unrest. It's a moment of divine re uh, grace where the human being literally is taken by the spirit. And as a spirit, you cannot be harmed. And so you see these powerful gestures, an individual here in Benin and uh, slicing into his skin with a, with a razor to show the power of his faith, or more profoundly um, in Haiti, voodoo acolytes handling burning embers with impunity. And this, this ability to, to um, cast the body into trance was one that absolutely enchanted me. And I think more than anything gave uh, me a sense of the power of belief, the power of culture to create new realities. So this is literally a photograph taken if you went 10 kilometers from that um, uh, Estelle Beauvoir, you would hit the epicenter of where this earthquake happened uh, yesterday. So, you know, in, in the end, we, we sort of have to ask ourselves, what kind of world do we want to live in? We have this sort of sense that, uh, you know, these cultures, quaint and colorful though they may be, are somehow destined to fade away as if by natural laws, if they're failed attempts at being us, failed attempts at being modern. Nothing could be further from the truth. Change is no threat to culture. All cultures are always dancing with new possibilities for life. Technology is no threat to culture. Uh, technology is a gift to culture. These aren't cultures destined to fade away. In every case, these are dynamic living peoples being driven out of existence by identifiable forces. And that's actually an optimistic observation because it suggests that if human beings are the agents of cultural destruction, we can be the facilitators of cultural survival. Now, when I did the research on zombies, I wrote a book that was made into the worst Hollywood movie in history uh, called The Serpent and the Rainbow. And Hemingway said that if you sell a book to Hollywood, you should start off in Arizona, drive to the California line, throw the book over, and go back to Tucson and have a drink. Uh, I didn't do that. I, with my good friend Ian McKenzie, a linguist here in the audience, went off to the rainforest of Borneo because we had heard about the plight of the Penan, and I think we were both enchanted with the idea of a nomadic people living in the rainforest because, of course, nomadic life is what we all as humans once shared until the Neolithic Revolution of 12,000 years ago, and nomadic cultures are profoundly different. How do you measure wealth, for example, in a society in which there is no incentive to accumulate material possessions? Well, wealth becomes seen as a strength of social relations between people, because if those relations fray, everybody suffers. By the same token, 
a certain form of generosity becomes reflexive because you never know when you will be the next to bring food to the table or who will be the next to bring food to the table. I once gave a cigarette to a Penan woman and watched as she tore it apart to, to distribute the individual strands of tobacco equitably, rendering the product useless but honoring the obligation to share. And the Penan had a quality of being that has struck every outside observer who's been fortunate enough to live um, amongst them. And, of course, that way of life in a generation was swept away. Uh, at a time when you heard so much of the defore about the deforestation of the Amazon in the mid-'80s, Brazil perhaps produced 3% of the tropical log exports, as much as 45% was coming from Malaysia, much of it from the homeland of the Penan. And so in a single generation, a way of life morally inspired, inherently right, was literally um, uh, collapsed along with the rainforest that, in a sense, had given it birth. And I'll never forget the, the day when Ian called me from, uh, I think he was in Singapore and I was in Lhasa, to let me know that the last of the nomadic Penan had, in fact, uh, settled. And nomadic societies are not, you know, it's almost... There's a whole other thing that goes on, which is that in a non-written tradition, it seems that there's a relationship to the natural world that I've, I've experienced with, with, with non-literate societies. It's almost as if in the same way that we can hear the voices of a, of a character when we read a novel, my experience with Athabascan peoples in northern Canada uh, or with the Penan, it's almost like uh, the, the, the flight of a bird becomes a cursive script of nature, like a vocabulary written on, on the wind. And the thought that a way of life uh, could have slipped away within a lifetime is, is almost too haunting to, to imagine. But these sorts of industrial intrusions do not just occur in distant realms of the world. This is my closest friend in Canada, uh, Oscar Dennis, who is leading the fight for a place that we call the Sacred Headwaters. By an extraordinary accident of geography, three of our most important salmon rivers, the Skeena, the Stikin and the Nass are all born in the same meadows uh, at a place known to the indigenous people as the sacred headwaters. That's a place that there are now proposals for the extraction of anthracite coal, copper and gold mines, and most uh, threatening of all, a proposal by Royal Dutch Shell to impose coal bed methane extraction, a template of wells that will literally blanket the entire headwaters. And what I find curious about these developments environmental concerns aside, is what they tell us about the way we approach the natural world. We take it as a no to be quite normal that a, a, a handful of men back in Toronto can cobble together a company with less history than my dog, get online and secure the subsurface rights to a place that they have never been, of which they have no experience, the narratives of which they have no connection to, and secure simply by promising the government a certain revenue flow, either in terms of taxation or royalties, they secure the right to, by definition, in their own self-interest, leave that landscape transformed and indeed violated forever. We take that as a given, but it's highly anomalous in human affairs. The only place in the world I know where such a miracle of geography happens is on the slopes of Mount Kailash in Tibet, where the Indus, the Brahmaputra, and the Ganges are born. The, you can't even set foot on that mountain, let alone impose industrial infrastructure, and the thought of doing so would condemn your lineage for all time. 
we take this as an absolute normal way of industrializing the wild. There's not a single metric in the calculus that rationalizes the industrialization of the wild that takes into account the value of the land left alone or the cost inherent in its destruction for the commons, which is the rest of us. We think of that as normal, but it's highly anomalous in human affairs, and it's certainly not the way that the Taltan people think, and it's not the way that the Aboriginal people of Australia think. I recently made a film um, for the National Geographic on the Dreamtime because I wanted to go to what had historically been seen as the civilization or the culture that more than any was seen to be different than that of the West. And indeed, when the British first washed ashore on the shores of Australia, they found a strange landscape, strange animals, and a strange people who looked strange, who clearly had a simple, primitive technology. And what most offended the British is that the Aboriginal people of Australia clearly had never attempted to improve upon their lot. That was offensive to the British because self-improvement was the ethos of the Victorian age. The British concluded, of course, that the Aboriginal people of Australia were savages, and they simply began to shoot them. As recently as 1902, it was debated in the Parliament in Australia as to whether Aboriginal people were human beings. As recently as the 1960s, a textbook for kids in Australia, a treasury of fauna of Australia, included the Aborigines as amongst the interesting examples of Australian wildlife. But what was it that was really going on? What the British failed to understand was that the Aboriginal people had in fact developed one of the most extraordinary philosophical traditions in the history of humanity. We know from studies of the Y chromosome that the Aboriginal people of Australia were the first wave of human beings to walk out of Africa. They reached Australia remarkably quickly and certainly had settled the continent by 50,000 years ago. They reached that most parsimonious of continents and then they went walking over time establishing as many as 10,000 clan territories, all of which were linked together by a single idea. And that idea was the dreaming. And the dreaming wasn't a dream. It was a, straight, it was a state of perpetual existence in multidimensional space. The purpose of life for the Australian was not to improve on anything, but simply to do the ritual gestures that were necessary to maintain the world exactly as it was at the time of the first dawning, when the rainbow serpent spread its body across the earth and the ancestors sang the world into being. In not one of the 670 dialects and languages of Australia is there a word for time, past, present, or future. The Aboriginal people of Australia were not victims of history. They were a people who, in a sense, had defeated the notion of history itself. A people whose traditions answered both the question, how and why. And the fascinating thing is not to say who was right and who was wrong, or to idealize in any particular way the adaptation of these people, but to simply ask the obvious question. Had human beings followed this particular devotional philosophy, yes, we would not have put a man on the moon, but we also wouldn't be talking about the capacity of human beings through climate change to transform the biological life supports of the planet. Now, very often the threat to culture is ideological. This is a photograph I took of a Buddhist nun at Angkor Wat who has had her hands and lay, uh, feet cut from her body for the crime of practicing her religious faith. 
And if we slip for a moment into the mountains of Tibet, we see the consequences of that fateful moment when Mao Zedong, the Marxist communist ideologue who had the remarkable achievement of being responsible for the death of more of his own people in his lifetime than Hitler and Stalin combined. When Mao Zedong famously whispered into the ears of His Holiness the Dalai Lama that all religion was poison, His Holiness knew what was coming. And of course, with the invasion of Tibet and the final um, uh, uh, transformation of Tibet in 1959, 1.2 million Tibetans may have died and 6,000 temples were reduced to riprap and dust. And you have to ask, as I asked Mathieu Ricard, what was it that so threatened the Marxist materialists in this curious and remarkable faith of Buddhism? What is the Buddhist Dharma? It comes down to the Four Noble Truths. All life is suffering. By that, the Buddha didn't mean that all life is negation. He just meant that shit happens. <laughs> the cause of suffering is ignorance. And by that, the Buddha did not mean stupidity. He meant the tendency of human beings in their cruel delusions to cling to the uh, illusion of their own centrality in a stream of divine desire. The third of the noble truths was the, was the revelation that ignorance could be overcome. And the fourth and the most practical was the literal delineation of a contemplative practice that if followed not only had a possibility of a transformation of the human heart, but had 2,500 years of empirical evidence that such a transformation could happen. And with Mathieu and with Sherab Barma, Tibetan doctor, I undertook a couple of years ago this kind of pilgrimage of the heart to the flanks of Everest, under the graces of Trosu Grimpoche, the head of the Nyingma tradition, not to climb the mountain, but to go to a place where we could encounter a true bodhisattva, a true hero, a wisdom hero, a woman who had given up the possibility of her own liberation from the realm of samsara, and stayed in the realm of, of, of samsara to facilitate the liberation of other sentient beings. We went up past the caves where Cherub had spent a year of his seven years of medical training in solitary isolation. And we came eventually, through the graces of Mathieu and Trosu Grimpoche, to this site. A woman who 45 years before had gone into isolated retreat. And for all of that time, she had lived in a cell at a nunnery chanting a single mantra. And the minute this door opened, the first time light had fallen on her face from the sun in 45 years, I half expected to meet a madwoman. Instead, I met a woman whose eyes sparkled with happiness and contentment. And this is the point. For the Buddhists, the proof of the efficacy of the science of the mind is the serenity achieved by the practitioner of the Four Noble Truths. So in the end, my point is we have a choice. What kind of world do we want to live in? Margaret Mead said before she died that her greatest fear was that as we drifted toward this blandly amorphous worldview, not only would the entire range of the human spirit be reduced to a more narrow modality of thought, but we would wake from a dream having forgotten that there were even other possibilities of life itself. The other peoples of the world aren't failed attempts at being us. They're unique answers to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human? And the reason this is so important is that culture is not trivial. Culture is not decorative. It's not the songs we sing. It's not the robes we wear. 
Fundamentally, culture is about a body of ethical and moral values that every culture places around the individual to keep at bay the barbaric heart that history so sadly teaches us lies beneath the surface of every human being. It's culture that allows us to make sense out of sensation, to find order and meaning in the universe. It's culture that allows us, as Lincoln said, to always seek the better angels of our nature. And if you want to know what happens when culture is lost, when through volition or coercion, the individual turns their back on the constraints of tradition, often to be cast into a world of disaffection and alienation, perhaps in pursuit of a world of affluence that the individual may aspire to but rarely achieve, and instead finds him or, so, him or herself simply on the lowest rung of economic ladder that goes nowhere, you simply have to look around the world to the points of chaos, the butt-naked brigades in Liberia, the eastern Congo where rape is a systematic weapon of war, the insanity of the shining path at the gates of Lima or the mouse in Kathmandu. Culture is not trivial. Culture is the glue of civilization. It is culture that allows us to be human. And the world is finally waking up to this extraordinary uh, uh, gift of the human imagination is brought into being by culture. When I was a kid, the Inuit people of the Arctic were dismissed as savages. And indeed, when the British first went to the Arctic, they took the Inuit to be savages. The Inuit took the British to be gods. What the British failed to understand is that there was no better sign of human genius than the ability to survive in a harsh environment on a technology that was limited to what you could make from the cold. The Inuit didn't fear the cold, they took advantage of it. The runners of their sleds were originally made of fish, three Arctic char wrapped in frozen and wrapped in a caribou hide skin and then greased with the stomach content of the caribou. The Inuit didn't fear the cold, they took advantage of it. This photograph I took 250 kilometers out on the sea ice north of Igloolik in the Canadian Arctic. That night the temperature dropped wind chill to minus 80 Celsius. These guys made an igloo, survived in a way that I could never have imagined, a people for whom blood on ice is not a sign of death but an affirmation of life itself. And I've often told the story that I've always thought was apophical when I was narwhal hunting with these Inuit from northern Baffin Island. Uh, they told me a story of the dark days of Canadian history when we forced the Inuit into settlements in the 1950s uh, to establish our sovereignty in the Arctic. And this man, Olayek's grandfather, refused to go into the settlement. And so, fearful for his life, they took away of all of his weapons and all of his tools. And so what did the old man do? He slipped outside into the Arctic night, pulled down his caribou hide and sealskin trousers, defecated into his hand, and as the feces began to freeze, he shaped it into the form of a blade. As the implement made from human waste took final form, he put a spray of saliva along the leading edge, and when the shit knife, as it's known, was finally created from the cold, he used it to kill a dog. He skinned the dog, improvised a harness with the skin of the dead dog, improvised a, rib, uh, a sled from the rib cage of the dead dog, harnessed up an adjacent living dog, and shit knife and belt disappeared in the Arctic night. Now, when I, I... You talk about getting by with nothing. 
But I thought that was apophical until I read in the journals of Peter Froiken, who was with Rasmussen on the 5th Thule expedition, and uh, Froiken's out there in a blizzard, and to protect himself, he puts a, digs a trough in the snow, pulls his sled on top, and then becomes encased in ice in a coffin of his own making. And in a very offhanded way in his primary journal says, I thought of making a shit knife, but I couldn't really maneuver. So, <laughs> but the, the tragedy in all of this, finally, tonight, is, is that having endured so much, and the, in a way the Inuit are a symbol of, of cultural survival and adaptation, now they're confronting something that's beyond their capacity to control. This is a photograph taken in Kanak, the northernmost community in the world in northwest Greenland. Uh, in the language of the polar Eskimo, the word sila means both weather and consciousness. And we flew from Igluluk with an Inuk friend of ours who had made the journey with his dogs to northwest Greenland. And as we crossed Smith Sound, it was March month, 12 degrees south of the North Pole. We noticed that Theo was looking out the window and he had begun to cry. And we couldn't figure out what, his, what was wrong. And of course, the answer was he was looking down at open water where there should have been ice. And when we went hunting in northern Greenland, we had to use boats. And the season of the ice, which used to come in in September and remain until July, now comes in in November and is gone by March. So the way of life, in a sense, has been cut in half. And I think, in a way, uh, if, you, if you look at the subtitle of this book, Why Ancient Wisdom Matters in the Modern World, you really only have to say two words, climate change. Not because we are somehow going to go back to a pre-industrial past or that any culture should be kept from the brilliance of modernity. But the very existence of different cultures and different ways of thinking puts the lie to those who say that we're on a train wreck to history. It shows the folly of those who say that we cannot change as we know we must change the fundamental way we inhabit the planet. Because in the end, I think we need these multiple visions of these multiple cultures because they're not only our collective heritage, they become part of our kind of naked geography of hope. Thank you very much. You're there. This is a table where I can put all of the many questions that nobody was able to write because they were so busy listening to you. I've never had so few questions, but they're obviously out there, so keep them coming up to you, Alexander. He will rush up from time to time with questions, and uh, so we will proceed. I'm trying to figure out if it's an artifact that you had to go to absolutely fierce places to find these intact, sophisticated, uh, very complicated cultures. And what I'm wondering is, are the cultures that profound and amazing because they're in a very tough place? You talk about the ethnogeography. Or are they the only places that are surviving because uh, those of us who are looking for real estate haven't figured out a way to, to do that there? Well, you know... I None of these societies, you know, it's so, I, th I think it, none of these societies are isolated. You know, in a presentation like this, you could give the impression of that. I mean, the exciting thing is that, that they're not isolated. They're completely connected through the Internet, uh, through communication, uh, uh, and yet still they've made the choice. And, and it's very important because we're not talking about freezing people in time. You can't make a rainforest park of the mind. 
it's, it's not about the modern versus the traditional. It's about the rights of free people to choose the components of their lives. And, for example, one of the most interesting things about the polar Eskimo, and the, the word Eskimo is a pejorative term in the Arctic, but not in, 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 um, in, in Greenland, is that if you go to the village of Kanak, you find these wonderful little Danish houses. Everybody's got DVDs. Everybody's got cell phones. But they also have their dogs. And unlike in the Arctic, where the dogs have been basically swept away by technology and skidoos and snowmobiles, the people of Greenland recognized that dogs were the cultural pivot. And if you kept the dogs, you kept everything. That because the very act of keeping dogs, of hunting with dogs, gave you a certain freedom on the ice, it gave you a, a sense of independence from the cash economy, it, it demanded skills that created a lineage with your past. So it's very important that no anthropologist is talking about freezing people in time. You know, it, it, it's, about, it's about asking what kind of world we all want to live in. Uh, here's a question related to that from Melinda. Um, how often do you see the impact of Google Earth affecting these remote safe haven cult cultures that you're uh, talking about around the world? Uh, you know, I, I, again, you get back to this idea that, that the, uh, the, the supposition there is that these are fragile people, you know, which mm -hmm. is a kind of a paternalistic way of thinking about it. I mean, these are some of the toughest, most dedicated, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, if I say that, you know, technology and change doesn't threaten culture, power threatens culture, the, the, the other side of the story is that the power of, of, and resilience of culture is incredible. You know, when I first went, for example, to the uh, Arawakos in 1974, uh, bourgeois people in, 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 in Bogota would say to me, ¿Por qué quiere vivir con la gente sucio? Why do you want to live with the dirty people? The last five Colombian presidents, as a first act of office, have gone to the Mamos to pay homage to the tradition. When I I didn't finish this story of the Northwest Amazon. The reason 250 men in ritual regalia are taking ayahuasca and becoming the ancestors uh, is because of a political decision made in Colombia. Um, when I, we went back on this expedition with Martin von Hildebrand and Stephen Hugh Jones, who's a former head of anthropology at Cambridge, who has, has worked with the Barasana since 1968, uh, he had been part of a BBC series called Disappearing Worlds. When he saw what was going on in the longhouse at uh, Puerto Ortega, he got on the satellite phone to his wife, who was also an anthropologist, and he said, Christine, you won't believe your fucking eyes. It's like the only people that disappeared are the fucking missionaries. And, and, and in fact, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm quoting him, an erudite scholar from Cambridge. But what indeed happened is that the father of the current Colombian ambassador, Carolina Barco, Virgilio Barco, loved Indians. And when he came to office in 1985, he made this young anthropologist, Martin von Hildebrand, his head of Indian affairs. And he just said, Martin, do something for the Indians. And in five extraordinary years, Martin did more than something. He secured legal land title for an area of land the size of the United Kingdom, encoded in the 1991 Constitution of Colombia. And behind the veil of that security and the violence created by the current situation in Colombia, which kept the federal state out of the Amazon, this entire new dream of the earth was reborn. So this idea that, you know, we're talking about the past, we're not talking about the past, we're talking about where we're moving forward. And it's, you know, the answer is politics. You know, Canada uh, created a territory called Nunavut. You know, we, we gave back total administrative control of an area of land half the size of Western Europe to 26,000 Inuit people. When I was a logger on the Queen Charlotte Islands, the Haida used to say, 
who the hell was Queen Charlotte? <laughs> now, even our conservative prime minister two weeks ago legally changed the name of that archipelago. Forevermore, it will be known as Haida Gwaii in legal Canadian law. You know, so I'm very optimistic about where this can all go. When you were logging in the Queen Charlotte's, were there Indians on your crew? Indians never got above the landing. In other words, uh, you, if you were a native, you could be a rigging slinger, you could be a chokerman, uh, you could never be a faller. Yeah, I was a choker setter. Didn't arise up to that faller thing. Did you go up the trees? Did you? We, did, we had medill yarders by then. Ah. This decline or not decline thing, it, it, you know, Ed, Edward Orr Wilson, who you spoke of, has talked about this kind of period of a bottleneck that the whole world seems to be in. Climate change is part of it. Loss of biodiversity is part of it. Loss of cultural diversity is part of it. And the sense is that, that getting through it, there's broad sun, sunlit uplands on the other side. You know, if we make it there, if the, 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 the cultures, the species that make it through this weird period of 50 or 100 years are going to be in better shape. Do you sense that with the cultures that you're totally, talking about? Totally. You know, I, I always say pessimism is an indulgence. I mean, if you're a father, you, you, you can't be pessimistic. And, and if you look, we're so impatient with history, but, you know, it, within our lifetimes, I always say, you know, women have gone from the kitchen to the boardroom, uh, gay people from the closet to the altar, uh, African-Americans from the woodshed to the White House. Uh, 30 years ago, just getting people to stop throwing garbage out of a car window was a great environmental victory. No one spoke of the biosphere. Now it's part of the vernacular of school children. Uh, you know, and I think that, that um, what's going to drive this transformation will not be the nation-state. I mean, I have a very strong sense. I mean, the nation-state, as Daniel Bell said, has become um, too big for the little problems of the world and too little for the big problems of the world. And, and uh, there were 60 nation-states in the year 1900, and that there's now, what, 190? Mm -hmm. Most of them dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And I really saw that at Copenhagen during the, um, during the Earth Summit, the Climate Summit. I mean, the the posturing by the nation states, all of them, was really um, appalling. So there you are in Copenhagen. There's an anthropologist at Copenhagen at the climate conference. That's interesting. What did you see as an anthropologist? Well, they sent me over there not as a, a, an expert on, on climate change, I, just to sort of to, to, to try to... Uh, someone actually... Uh, the full story is that Nissan is about to launch an all-electric car called The Leaf, and they, one of their executives had read this book, new book of mine, and they thought maybe this would be interesting to just take a kind of anthropological look at this moment in time. And what I found uh, sort of interesting was that the, 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 the posturing by the nation states, I mean, you had, you, had, um, uh, you know, the, the, the developed world totally exaggerating their plans for carbon reduction, uh, the, the third world so-called clamoring for cash in an appalling way, Saudi Arabia asking for compensation, uh, African, <laughs> African nations using terms like reparations as if there had been a carbon conspiracy afoot since the birth of the Industrial Revolution, <laughs> uh, the European Union uh, I I sanctimoniously talking about its 20 percent uh, carbon uh, reduction uh, quota uh, from 1990 when they knew full and well they'd already achieved 12% of that just by admitting the 13 failed states of the former Soviet bloc. Uh, <laughs> China talking about reducing its carbon intensity as if 
you know, which all that meant is that, you know, carbon emissions could continue to go up as long as they didn't go up at a higher rate than the kind of steroidal growth of the Chinese economy. You had India um, basically saying, well, you know, you had it for 100 years, it's our turn to poison the world. I mean, it left you, it left you really uh, uninspired by uh, the nation state, uh, by bureaucrats. But on the other hand, I found the corporate presence very interesting. Um, uh, very strong sense that the Green Revolution, which is you've written so well in your book, I mean, you know, if everything you think bad about, you know, the most, I, I don't believe in conspiracies, particularly in America. I've never met an American who keep a secret, let alone amount a conspiracy. <laughs> but, uh, 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 but even in your if your worst fears of capitalist corporate greed should be make you very happy about what's going to happen with climate change, because if they're this kind of mercenary, they're going to be going after this big time. Question from Tavik, it looks like. Where's Tavik? 10,000 years ago, the last ice age ended. Many of the cultures we saw tonight are older than that. Did they have stories of that time of climate change? No. I, I don't know. I mean, no, I... You know, Ian tells a really incredible story. That story of yours of the eclipse is really interesting. Uh, I can't remember it, but... Uh, but no, but I mean, I can't give you the detail. I'm not going to steal his thunder. I mean, but no, but it's, it's, it's a fantastic story where, where, where what, what appears in language and intonation uh, uh, to be a, a kind of a, a, a story sort of like, you know, raven emerging from the clamshell to steal the sun is, in fact, uh, a, a, a specific memory of, of an astronomical event that you were able to identify as having occurred. So what my point is that just because the language of, of memory and, and a, a narrative may sound imprecise, it, 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 it's not clear that it always is mm-hmm. imprecise. I mean, part of it is, you know, some of these events, are so, I mean, people forget that, I mean, the, peop- the First Nations of the Pacific Northwest, for example, are relatively recent arrivals. I mean, I mean mm-hmm. the great fluorescence of the Northwest Coast, co- Coast cultures only occurred with the arrival of the red cedar tree, which is a tree of life. And we know botanically that that only mm-hmm. really reached up the coast of British Columbia within, you know, five, ten thousand 10,000 years ago. So... Some of this mythology is probably deep memory, and some of it's metaphor. Here's a question from Dana. Have you seen the movie Avatar? You know, I haven't. Um, and I, I just got, I've, I've gotten asked by uh, uh, so many news bureaus to, to talk about that movie, so I'm, I, I, I haven't seen it yet. No, I He did engage some interesting scientists. They invented the language mm-hmm. rather carefully. They invented the whole botany. They named all the botanical items out there and so on. So you will enjoy it, I suspect. This question, I can't believe, is from somebody named Boaz. Um, how do you introduce yourself and integrate yourself into the societies you visit, such as in Haiti and the Amazon and Inuit and so on? Well, I mean, you show up, right? And then well, you know, this, I mean, this is a great, you know, we all do it as travelers. You know, I mean, this conceit that anthropologists have that, you know, they're somehow better travelers than the uh, normal traveler and the travelers are better than the tourists. You know, I mean, we're all tourists, you know, in a way. And what I've found is, what I find so interesting about culture is that for all this sort of celebration of, of, of diversity that I've spoken about, what's fascinating is, is the commonality we share. I mean, you know, every human population, every culture deals with the same challenges. We all have to have children. We all have to find ways to... Um, procreate, we have to come together in a meaningful way that's consistent, we have to deal with the mystery of death, 
And so what I find fascinating about culture is that given that commonality, uh, how many different expressions have emerged over the last, you know, 40,000 years. So when I go to another culture, I've always found, I'm sure you've found it in your own travels, that the same traits that would make you welcome in somebody's house at Thanksgiving are the very traits that would make you welcome in someone's yurt in Mongolia. Um, good manners, self-deprecating sense of humor, a willingness to eat anything that's put in front of you, uh, to share what... No, food, food's not trivial. I mean, I mean, I have many times, and I know Ian has, uh, you'll, eat, you'll eat food that you know is going to give you giardia or dysentery, absolutely. Uh, and not, that's generally in, in you know, crummy little border towns, not in indigenous communities. But what I, my point is that, is, is, that, is, is that you can always treat the giardia, but you can never rekindle the connection that's broken by the statement that you're, you're superior. I remember when the Black Canoe, Bill Reed's great monumental sculpture, was being dedicated at the Canadian Embassy in Washington. Uh, my wife, Gail, and I lived in Vancouver at the time, um, and uh, our house, as Ian will remember, was a way station for anybody who wanted to stay there. And in the middle of the night, um, David Phillips and Gujao turned up with this delegation of Haida that were going to go back to bless. And it was the middle of the night, and they started just pouring into this house with hampers full of food. I mean, uh, venison and dried salmon and herring roe. And, and finally, you know, just watching these tons of food come into the living room, I said, Gujao, you know, they do eat in Washington. And he said, you think we're going to let them feed us? You know, <laughs> you know that's food's power. How do you finesse language? I mean, you're going to places where apparently you haven't learned the language. I'm terrible. This guy, I keep pointing to him, but he's one of my best friends. We wrote a book together, and he, he's a wonderful linguist. What's he, the book? Uh, Nomads of the Dawn. Now, the thing, the thing is, I always exaggerate. How many languages do you really speak? It all depends how well. Oh, <laughs> he speaks more than a dozen languages. That's true. Yeah, I'm terrible at languages, so, just, so I go with him. Uh, no, I, I speak Spanish and French, but I, I, I really do have a poor ear for languages. But, um, you know, you know one, of the, one of the challenges is that, you know, I mean, uh, in, seriously, I mean, someone like Ian, who's a, doing longitudinal research with the Penan, dedicating himself to learn that language with all his gifts, and he'll be the first to say that, that he would be a lifetime there and still not be a fluent speaker of Penan, by definition. So when, when you travel broadly like I do, and I think of myself in a way more of a storyteller than, a, than an mm -hmm. academic, in a sense. And I, I don't mean storytelling in a trivial sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I speak French and I speak Spanish, and obviously that gives you a certain kind of uh, fluidity in, in much of the world, Equatorial West Africa, Latin America. Uh, but, you know, to, to learn Quechua, to learn Tibetan, implies a commitment to place that I have never made. And I really admire those who do make that commitment. So you typically go in with somebody with yeah, a guy. Yeah, I mean basically. we're always a team. I mean mm. part of the whole thing is 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 everything we're doing is the antithesis of the 19th century conceit that that you can be this sort of you know white male academic fly on the wall looking at the booga booga. I mean <laughs> I mean every one of these film projects we do for the National Geographic are utter collaborations. I mean with with the uh, I mean the reason 
the, the FARC knew where, exactly where we were in Sierra Nevada is that our journey and itinerary was absolutely public because we had worked very closely with Gonavandua, the, the indigenous organization. I mean, with the, 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 the Barasana, we never could have made that film without the cooperation of Fundacion um, Gaia Amazonas, Martin's NGO. Uh, and and the collaboration of Stephen Hugh Jones. So I mean, I I'm never interested in the in the conceit of like being alone out there. Uh, I I if you read my books, you'll almost never see the first person personal pronoun. Uh, I'm there to tell a story uh, of the other, and if I can be a filter to facilitate that, that's what I. But the more, the merrier. You know? Here's a big question, which. Um my book, Whole Earth Discipline, got into just two whole chapters on urbanization. So urbanization, I could imagine, uh, is the death of the cultures you're talking about, or perhaps by drawing a lot of people but not all the people off the landscape where some of these cultures are intact, it may uh, in some ways free them up. Mm-hmm. What's your sense? I mean, urbanization is huge. We're now half urban. We're headed yeah. toward 80% urban in the world. Well, it's funny because when, when I, I read, you know, I don't know if you've all read Stuart's new book, but I adore the book. And uh, he converted me to nuclear. Um, I, I mean, that's he did. Um, and and uh, and that's new. You, we used to get booed. I know, I know. <laughs> but but it's it, no, no. Oh, right. <laughs> the part of the book that shook me up the most um, and disturbed me the most, and I didn't have an answer for. And I couldn't deny was what you talked about urbanization, and that expression you said the urban era makes one free. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't quite buy your idea that the the favelas are these centers of incredible rich creativity because they're also centers of despair. But mm-hmm. but I sort of bought what you're saying there. I mean I I think you're absolutely right when you say the trend the demographic trend to urbanization is inexorable and may in fact liberate natural landscapes. I thought that was a great argument. Uh, Do you see that at all, where these places you're going? I see see what I see is that every... It's not an either-or situation. If you go, there is no village in the Andes that doesn't have a family representative in Lima. Mm -hmm. You cannot survive in the Andes without some access to the capital metropolitan area. Hmm. Same thing in Kenya. I mean, the fascinating thing in Kenya, you know, is that you can be with the Rindili or the Samburu, um, and uh, the same guy who by, by day or by week is your, your, your policeman on Saturday is in full regalia during some kind of ritual event. Mm-hmm. I don't see it as an either-or thing. I think that increasingly, uh, the same thing with the Arctic. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody's got a cousin in Winnipeg, you know, or someone in Vancouver. And that, that's probably, that dialectic, economic dialectic, is probably going to be the norm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the ur- urban space has to consume the rural or, or drain the rural, on the contrary. I mean, uh, and there's also a difference between the kinds of, of rural life that you write about, which which is sort of the... The, 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 you know, the yoke of the plow and mm-hmm. the hot sun, you know. Peasant life. You know, and, and tedium and boredom. But when I, when I, when I, and every culture I've ever seen has trouble keeping its young. There is, there's a magnetic allure to the modern that mm-hmm. is, is difficult to account for or resist. But at the same time, I see that, that, that this, this uh, having a foot in the, in the 
cosmopolitan world does not imply that you can't still and a lot of it is whether or not the the activities and the practices of the traditional culture in place are acknowledged and honored by the metropolitan society mm-hmm. and that's what's so interesting about Colombia Colombia in all of its agony has got this one thing it can be extremely proud of i mean there's certain of course there's certain areas of Colombia where with the Paez and Cauca, for example, there's been a lot of conflict, a lot of murder, a lot of bloodshed. But fundamentally, Colombia has, in a very remarkable way, uh, uh, sought a kind of restitution with its indigenous populations, which is remarkable, given the agony that it's been going through. I think a question that everyone has, and it's reflected in some of the questions that we've gotten here, is what is... Uh, people here, people who read your book, people who read, see your videos, do or be careful not to do uh, in terms of honoring and preserving, um, not helping destroy the cultures well, you're I, talking you know, I, about. I think all, you know, it's not us versus them. All cultures are famously culturally myopic. Mm-hmm. I mean, the word barbarian comes from the Greek barbarous. If you babbled, if you didn't speak Greek, you were a barbarian. Right. Uh, the, the Aztec had the same notion with Nahuatl. Uh, the, 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 the name for so many indigenous peoples translates the people, mm-hmm. the implication being that everybody else is a savage beyond the pale. My argument is that that kind of cultural myopia is something we can't afford anymore in an interconnected world. And, and so, for example, if you, as Americans, I think the most powerful thing you can do is demand of your government and of your society in general uh, uh, an openness that we have not had. I mean, to me, the great exemplar of that is when the coalition provisional authority went to Iraq to solve the problems of a part of the world that was 4,000 years old, 65% of the coalition, the cadre of the coalition provisional authority had to get passports for the first time to go to Iraq. So how were they supposed to solve any problems? And, 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 and you know, I, people often say, you know, why does it matter to someone in San Francisco if a tribe in Africa disappears? Well, it probably doesn't. But, but why does it matter to a tribe in Africa if San Francisco disappears? It doesn't. But wouldn't the world be a more impoverished place were either event to happen? I mean, most of the world won't see a Monet painting in a museum or hear a Mozart symphony performed by an orchestra. But does that imply that the world wouldn't be more impoverished if those artists hadn't existed? So I think, you know, there are very specific political things that we need to do. I mean, and in terms of, like, we've seen this in, 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 in our... In, um, in, uh, and p- part of it is just to have a certain basic humility. Like, I always say, you know, if a Martian anthropologist came to the United States, uh, they'd see many wondrous things. And if the measure of success was technological achievement, we would come out shining. But if they looked at the social structure, they'd say some obvious things, like, you know, uh, half their, you know they, they, they say they revere marriage, but half their marriages end in divorce. They say they love their elders, but only 6% of American homes have elders beneath the same roof as grandchildren. They say they love their kids, but they have this weird slogan, 24-7, implying total dedication to workplace, and then they wonder why the average American youth has spent two years watching television by the age of 18. They're a society that is full of its own hubris but consumes two-thirds of the world's antipsychotic drugs while it's putting 400 million tons of toxic waste into its environment every year. And, and extreme would be one word for civilization. It rips down the ancient forest, tears holes in the heavens, 
depopulates the oceans and changes the biophysics of the atmosphere. I mean, to me, uh, th th this is the, 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 the remarkable thing, is that climate change should finally teach us that we're not the paragon of humanity's potential. You know, climate change is humanity's problem, but it wasn't humanity that created the problem. It's useful to remember that it was a very small subset of humanity that had a particular worldview. And we think of that worldview as being absolute, like, you know, the real world, like everyone else is, you know, sort of failing to keep up with us or something. But it's not. These other people's aren't failed attempts. They're just alternatives, you know. And, and it, you would think that the fact that we've, we've brought on this uh, climate crisis would, if anything, give us a little bit of humility about the impact that we've had on the planet. And that's precisely, and that one of the things I find so poignant around the world is that indigenous people who have n played no role in the creation of climate change are the ones who are seeing the consequences and trying to come to terms with it. For example, 80% of the water that goes to the western shore of South America comes from Andean snowmelt. Virtually all the agriculture in the Andes is irrigation-based in snowmelt. At the Coyariti Festival, the ultimate gesture is not simply taking the crosses from the glacier and returning them to your community. Traditionally, you chip blocks of ice from that glacier to carry back to the community, both for the elders who couldn't make the pilgrimage, but also as a perfect gesture to complete the sacred circle of the divine. Seeing and witnessing the rate of recession of those glaciers, the people have taken upon themselves no longer to chip ice from the glacier. That ice, of course, is a trivial amount of ice compared to, you know. And, 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 and that's another thing we forget about. Climate change isn't just a matter of physics or economy. It's also about psychology. Because we have this mechanistic view of the world which sees a mountain as a pile of rock. But if you really believe a mountain is a sacred being for whom you've got obligations ritualistically, and you see that mountain suffering, as the Kogi and the Arawakos, they see the ice melting at the heart of the world. They see the, the shrinking of Saranqua. They see the Paramos, the Alpine Meadows, drying up. They take personal responsibility for that, and there's nothing they can do about it. 500 million people may depend on the Ganges for water for irrigation and drinking, but for 800 million people, the Ganga is the sacred artery of life. How are they going to feel when, as climatologists predict, within 30 years, the Ganges is a seasonal river? Two years ago, there was a Hindu ritual in the highest ritual shrine in Kashmir, where traditionally the, lingman, uh, the lingma of, of um, the phallic symbol of Shiva was formed by the ice, and this year, it didn't form, and the 2,500 pilgrims rioted. Well, what's going to happen when 800 million people of the subcontinent realize the Ganji no longer flows? So I find it very moving that people for whom there are no responsibility for uh, the consequence of climate change are taking responsibility. In that polar language of polar Eskimo, sila means both weather and consciousness, and, and because human beings breathe into being the weather, and the weather is a reflection of human consciousness. And they now, as when we, we went um, bearded seal hunting and walrus hunting in this rain in March, and they just looked out and they said, this is not our weather. Okay, well, you've clearly got a theme for a, a video or a book or maybe a conference there, you know, the, the indigenous Copenhagen. 
where uh, you bring together or go around and get the stories of exactly the people who are sort of at the cutting edge of changing climate, whose culture is being impinged by that and who have a cultural perspective on it. Um, you know, would they have things to say to each other or does that need to come through a city person no, like talk, you? No, they're talking to each other by the internet. I mean, the internet's become okay. a global campfire. There are 1,500 languages on the internet. Everybody's talking to everybody. It's the most incredible tool of empowerment. So we're not losing languages as fast now thanks to the internet? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I honestly, you know, I, you know, I mean, I'm no linguist, and I only uh, mention this, this, this linguistic data because what, one of the things that's so fascinating is the, 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 um, the, the, the academic consensus is itself haunting. I mean, if you, Stuart, talk to biologists about species loss, uh, there's no consensus. What's fascinating is that um, there is absolutely academic consensus amongst linguists that this fundamental fact. I mean, no one knows quite how many languages there are because of definitions, but no one sits there and says, it's not really that bad, mm -hmm. half the languages aren't going. And I find that really haunting. And, and so I, I mention it because it's, it's, it's sort of a canary in the coal mine, and it, it's a concrete way that audiences like yourselves can understand this issue of culture. And one of the fascinating things about that whole... Um, uh, linguistic story is that one of the reasons it took so long for the linguists to sort of start screaming is because of Noam Chomsky and the, po <laughs> the power of Sorry. his the power of his idea of, of, of deep structure to languages uh, from what Ian explained to me is, is that it, it's almost as if uh, Chomsky viewed um, that there was a certain finite number of deep languages which were like the sort of genotype of language and that what we would call a language was like the phenotypic expression of that language and so as long as the deep structures were intact it didn't really matter if languages came and went and I'm not sure, I'm not sure that's what he would say but, but then everybody woke up as if the emperor had no clothes and it's, it's important that this extinction notion is important because the analogy is apropos you know obviously Extinction is a natural phenomenon in nature. Plants and animals have always gone extinct. But as E.O. Wilson says, you know, the, 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 in general, over the last 600 million years, speciation, the creation of new forms of life, has outpaced extinction, and the world's become a more biodiverse place. By the same token, languages have come and gone. We don't speak Latin anymore in the streets of Rome, Assyrian, or Babylonian. But before Latin faded, it had a chance to leave descendants, the Romance languages of Europe. Now languages like species are disappearing at such a rate that they don't have time to leave descendants. And so this is all part of this sort of waterfall of destruction that Wilson talks about. Well, we've sampled a waterfall of Wade Davis. There's a lot more in his book, and Wade will be uh, out in the lobby signing those books. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.